Good morning. Go over a few announcements, if we may. Our evening service tonight is uh, on at 6 p.m. Uh, as it says, uh, bringing drinks and a dish to pass. Next week, we will be having our communion service, and ladies are advised to check and consult the announcement board to see who is scheduled to set up. Uh, number seven is pretty self-explanatory. And uh, number eight is a reminder also on the front pew for the kids to take notes, uh, play dots or tic-tac-toe or something to keep them in tune. We have a couple of updates from last week. Uh, Sheila has told me that George is home resting somewhat comfortably. Uh, he's not in a lot of pain, but uh, he's got to be kind of immobilized because of the weather and can't get that uh, suture wet, soiled, or dirty in any way. So he's going to be kind of cloistered in the home for a few days, so please keep him in your prayers, and can he have visitors for a couple of days? Okay, excellent. And we have an update from Mercy on how her event went at the, at the doctor's. Mercy, if you will. Sorry, Jess? She's looking at me for help, so I'm going to call her. Okay, that's fine. When do you know, uh, do you have any kind of a timeline or schedule for the surgery? Jared, and when is your surgery scheduled? 
July 6th. July 6th, so we're going to have a lot of praying to do in the next, uh, well, starting right now, actually. We have a lot of big things going on here. Vicki Lilly, it's nice to see you back with us. Welcome back. I hope you're feeling well. Very good. Very good. Uh, do we have any other uh, uh, comments, prayer requests, uh, updates on others? Anyone know how Ken and Della are doing since last uh, week? Barry's uh, keeping them in prayer as well. So. Dale and Pam, you're going to be off to Bermuda here in a couple of days. Four or five days fun in the sun. The Bahamas. The Bahamas. Isn't that all about the same? <laughs> sun and sand and no rain. Enough, enough. <laughs> sorry, sorry I brought it up. And somewhere in all of that, you're going to be at a wedding. So I, I pray that uh, everything goes well for you guys. A safe trip, uneventful. And I hear the dog is going on a diet when uh, you guys are gone. So that might be a good thing, too. Okay, if there's no other comments or, or uh, uh, prayer requests, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 24 through 40, and that'll be page 1876 in your pew Bible.
stand with us as we begin our service of prayer. Dan, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 347 in the brown. 347.
anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 14 through 29. It's page uh, 1557 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Mark, chapter 4, verses 14 29. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? 
For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even that, even what he has will be taken from him. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it, because the harvest has come. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Can you read another text? Yes. I think I gave it in the bulletin. Sorry? That's uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. Even more word of God. Wonderful. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him in, in the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus... It immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to numbers 406. <coughs> 406 in the brown. Bless you.
Our text is Mark chapter 9, and we'll be in verses 14 and following. Mark chapter 9. Before moving on in our study of the living faith, I thought I would catch us up because we've had some uh, other messages dealing with uh, the holiday season. And so I want to get you back on track with where we are on this uh, study of a living faith. We looked at the fact that we have a stewardship of faith that God gives to his servants, entrusting each with a sum of wealth that they are to manage for him. But in the story of the talents, one buried his responsibilities in the ground instead of using it for God's glory, and he was called lazy and wicked. Jesus said that. I didn't say that. But it does give us a a viewpoint of what God thinks about us when we don't uh, use what our gifts are uh, for his kingdom. Secondly, in the message deposits for trusting God, we discovered that deposits are needed in a bank account before you can draw out. And so, With God, it is the same. He deposits repentance and life with regard to how do we take them out by faith before we will love him and serve him. You can't take out what's not there. And by the way, the world doesn't love God. We didn't love him either before Christ came into our life. And so it's all of grace. God grants us his grace by giving us the various things that he requires. Thirdly, we looked at confident faith, which demonstrates that all of us begin with no faith. We're not talking about human faith like faith in uh, your country, faith in your, your purchase of a certain automobile, faith in friends and so forth like that. We're talking about a spiritual faith. And God has to put it there for us to draw it out. We neither find God, if we do not find God, through human faith. Faith can be small, it can be weak, but the object is always Christ, and with him all things are possible. Then, fourthly, we looked at introspective faith. And that was a lesson on misplaced faith, introspective, faith in oneself, a sign of introspective church. It's kind of like tunnel vision. We talked about that. We just see what we want for ourselves. We don't look at the universal picture, the big picture. And that can lead to a sense of superiority over other believers. We have the truth, they don't. should not go that route. We're also become hypersensitive to negative criticism. We become known as the nice church, not the one that's confrontational. These are all possible problems with a superficial faith. Then the last time we were in this study, we talked about the living church. 
which is comprised of people called out of the world and fastened on Christ, the foundation stone. It's a house of worship where all of us are ruling priests, which is a great honor. That is, if we know Christ, we are. It's a spiritual house encompassing the world, and it's a holy nation, not just a meager few, but we are many. If you just think of uh, believers as being those that are in this little square here, you're, you're missing the point. The, the church is large. It includes every race, every tribe, every tongue. Now, not everybody in the tribe or with that tongue, but all the nations are represented in the followers of Christ. And that's humbling when you think about it. But it's also encouraging because it demonstrates that God is in control. And um, we look at ourselves and we say, well, we're just a little country church. Yeah, but we're not the sum of what God is doing. We're part of it, praise the Lord, but we're not the sum of it. Today, I want to talk to you about the hard work of faith. And that might sound a bit strange, but it'll become evident as we talk. So let's ask the Lord to bless us as we get into this subject. Our Father, we thank you for your word and pray your blessing upon it. Teach us something about the truth that we can't be flippant about faith. We have to understand that there are lots of enemies out there that vie for our affections and our loyalty. And yet, Christ has said we cannot serve two masters. Uh, and so our confidence is to be serving you and you alone. And to that end, we pray that you will bless us and grant that our faith be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. And we'll thank you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. When we talk about faith, we are confronted with the arguments of the world critics. As Peter, James, and John return with Jesus from the Mount of Transfiguration, Verse 9, to join the other disciples, they notice an argument ensuing between those disciples and the teachers of the law. Mark 9, verse 14. What were they arguing about? Well, we cannot be certain, but it appears to have said something to do with this father who had brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples for healing. They, however, were of no help because they could not bring it about. The teachers of the law were arguing or accusing the disciples of being charlatans and liars because of their inability to exercise this demon. They use the word powerless. You see, even the Jews had people 
who could perform exorcisms in the name of God. So what was the problem with these nine disciples of Jesus who claimed divinity for their master? And the people were thinking, you failed and your master failed. So you have nothing to say to us. On one occasion, the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Beelzebub is a name for Satan in Scripture, to which he, Jesus replied, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. So if Satan drives out Satan... He's divided against himself. That just makes sense, right? How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. Matthew 12, 24 and following. His point was that demons are not cast out by Satan, not ever. Why would Satan do that? He would be fighting against himself and sabotaging his own kingdom. And you don't win wars by shooting your own soldiers. Only God can cast out Satan's devils, for only God is more powerful than the evil spirits that are out and about. He told the disciples here in our text, verse 29, this kind, it's referring to the demon, this kind can come out only by prayer. What's prayer? Well, prayer is an appeal to God, right? To God Almighty, to intercede on behalf of those praying and grant their requests. The religious leaders on this occasion were likely chiding, mocking the disciples for their inability to help this poor man's son. Verse 19, Jesus put his finger on the problem. He says, Oh, unbelieving generation. This certainly included the nine disciples when they asked why they could not cast out this demon. Matthew's account has Jesus saying, because you have so little faith. Wow. Matthew 17, verse 20. In our text, he says, this kind of demon here, this kind can come out only by prayer. There's no discrepancy here. Prayer to God, if genuine, is the expression of a dependent faith, right? That's why we pray. But observe as well Jesus' words, Oh, unbelieving generation. Also included 
the unbelieving, faithless, religious leaders here present on this occasion, men who should have been able to point people to prayer and faith in God, the onlookers of the large crowds, verse 14, and the boy's father by his own admission, verse 24. So there's a lot of people here observing all of this. <coughs> and it's obvious that this particular case of demon possession was unique because Jesus said this kind can come out only by prayer. Ooh, there's different kinds of demons? Obviously. He also asserted, asserted everything is possible for him who believes, verse 23. So again I ask, well then, what's the problem? The arguments of the world are filled with unbelief. Oh, unbelieving generation, says Jesus. So brethren, the skepticism of the world influences our faith in God more than we'd like to admit. Let the world tell us that something is impossible and we're inclined to believe it. But that's not generally the way the world voices its skepticism. The world rather ridicules. You've been a Christian any length of time. You know what that's about. It ridicules, it mocks, and it usually portrays Anyone who believes in God, in his word, to be some kind of a buffoon, a fool. And no one likes become a laughingstock. We want respect. We want to be thought of as rational, logical thinking people who are just as intelligent as the next guy. But mockery is what we get. And it's an old trick that the world applies. Listen to David as he speaks in his day. David, the king of Israel. Here's what he says. The arrogant mocked me without restraint. But I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. That's from Psalm 119, verses 51 and following. Notice that David did not turn away from God's law, yet that was certainly the intent of the mockers. To convince David... To forsake his dependence on what God had to say about life and living. But David affirmed, Your decrees, Lord, are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. God had put a song in his heart and no one was going to take that away from him. In Isaiah's day, 
he wrote, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now, what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. That's Isaiah, 7, or Isaiah 52, verse 4 and 5. So when the world mocks us, they are blaspheming our God. We read last week Peter's charge where he said, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. 1 Peter 3, verse 16. The arguments of the world influence us for the worse. They convince us that we are stupid or ill-informed or naive to believe God when he speaks and to trust him over human reason and human logic. We cannot bear to have the reputation the reputation of being a dimwit or religious fanatic. It is what Jesus taught about the seed that fell on thorny soil. He writes, they hear the word, but, here it is, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Mark 4, verse 19. And Luke's account, same context. Luke's account adds, they, the thorny ground hearers, do not mature. It's only mature faith that will stick with Jesus through all the mockery and the lies of the world. An unbelieving generation is choked by the possibility of the world's arguments. They're not in church. They're not learning the word of God. They have no recall with regard to their upbringing. Most of them. so we are looked at as really strange people. Secondly, faith in God is hard when our efforts for God seem to fall flat. The disciples on this occasion were not able to cast out the demon from this man's son. The father said to Jesus, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit but they could not. Verse 18. Nothing makes faith in God hard work like lack of success at those times when you 
thought you had faith and were believing with all of your heart, and yet failure was the result. That'll discourage you real quick. And this is not the world mocking us, but almost as though God were mocking us by refusing to respond in the affirmative to what we view as work done for his glory. How embarrassing. Wow. Why does God allow us to be humiliated like that? Well, it could be that our faith was not so much in God as pride in our own abilities. An inordinate pride, which takes the view, we can do no wrong and cannot fail because we are the people of God. We are that living church. The same which we studied last week. Taken to a haughty conclusion. We are the church. Kind of that arrogance. In Luke's account of this, father and son, he tells us, an argument started among the disciples as to which of these would be the greatest. What? This dad has a child that is demon-possessed, the disciples tried to exercise this demon from the child, were unsuccessful, but they get into this argument among the disciples as to which of them is the greatest. So they're blaming, they're doing this, blaming each other. Well, it's because you, it, yeah, you didn't have enough faith, and on and on it goes. A lot of pride here. After returning home from a missionary tour on which Jesus had sent them, they reported to Jesus, here it is, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, however, Jesus goes on to say, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, 
Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, you have heard, but they did not hear it. Luke 10, verse 17 and following. You see, the disciples were pleased with themselves, maybe even gloating a little bit that they had been able to cast out demons on their preaching tour. Better by far, however, was the reality that they had had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life in Heaven. It was better that they could see and know the spiritual realities that others could only dream about. They were missing the big picture. One large reason we have trouble believing in God, having an active, trusting faith that casts oneself solely on God, is our pride. I think that's the biggie. So when our best efforts for God fall flat, we are demoralized, we are discouraged, we are full of doubts. But we did it to ourselves. Solomon writes, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 11, verse 2. Or again, just a few chapters later, Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach, we read, Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two, and he gave them authority over evil spirits. I'm reading scripture. Matthew 5, excuse me, Mark 6, verse 7. And in verse 13, he affirms, They drove out many demons and anointed many people with oil and healed them. So what I think happened, what I think happened, however, is that when they began to look at themselves as gifted miracle workers who were able to drive out demons on their own with little or no faith in God, and in the case of this man's son, no prayer about it, they fell flat on their face, and rightly so. And it's the best thing that could have happened to them, though not very profitable for this man's son. But they need to come down off their high horse. Well, you know, we, we are the disciples of God's son. Thirdly, faith in God is hard when there is a history of discouragement. I switch our attention now to the father in the story himself. When the disciples failed him and the man got a glimpse of Jesus, 
approaching with Peter, James, and John, he lost no time apprising Jesus of his frustration. Verse 17, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down on the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive up the spirit, but they could not. I think it's helpful to read this account from the other synoptic gospels, which kind of fill in the details. For example, Matthew 17, verse 15. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seized, and his suffering is great. He often falls into the fire, or into the wire, water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Can you sense this man's agony of soul, his desperation? The demon has maimed his son. Mark's account says a spirit has robbed him of speech. But there's more. This demon throws him to the ground, yes, but Matthew indicates he is often falls into the fire or into the water. What's that? The demon is trying to kill him. Remember Jesus' analysis of the Pharisees in John 8, verse 44? Jesus said to them, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire? That same thing could be said of every demon. Okay, what is father devil's desire? Jesus says, well, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. That's who the devil is. He killed Adam and Eve with a lie. And so a murderer resides within this man's son who has supernatural powers to throw him into seizures. And not only so, but to throw him into the camp cooking fires to burn him or large bodies of water to drown him. Yes, the devil is a murderer. That's what he does. So we ask, how did he get the demon in the first place? John says, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3 verse 18. So there's this war going on between Christ and the devil. That is not to say that everyone who sins is possessed by a demon, 
but it is to say that every sinner, all humanity, is in the devil's camp doing his bidding, which is sin, disobeying God. Guess where sin leads you? The mind of the sinful man, I'm reading scripture, the mind of sinful man is death. Romans 8, verse 6. Satan is working his plan, which was and is to kill Adam and his race. He's a murderer, but God's Son has come to destroy him. Luke's account of this incident reads, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, the father says, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves his And it is destroying him. It is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but ah, they could not. Luke 9, verse 38 and following. There's some new details here. This father is begging Jesus for help. And he had begged the disciples. People beg when they are desperate. When all other avenues of help have been cut off and all other resources have been exhausted. The statement, he is my only child, is full of desperation. This father has no other children. So this, then, would make this boy the only heir and also the only progenitor of the family name. Very, very important in biblical days in Oriental societies. If he loses his son, his family will be no more. Barring any more male children, his family tree will be cut off. What makes him think that what is happening to his son is fatal? I mean, maybe this is just epilepsy. People can live with ep epileptic seizures. No, this cannot be epilepsy. The spirit seizes him and screams with delight at the pain he causes this boy. The son is a mute. He cannot speak. Verse 17. Oh, and one other malady, verse 25, identifies the demon as a deaf 
demon, as well as a mute spirit. Oh, so the man could not hear or speak. The Father has watched through the years. Verse 21, he's watched from childhood. This demon's multiple attempt to kill his son by burning or drowning him. Verse 22. Luke 9.39, the father observed of the demon, it scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. How'd you like to live with that, parents? Makes me grieve just, just to think about it. How helpless this dad must have felt. Is it any wonder then that when this father finally obtained an audience with Jesus himself, he said, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Verse 22. Jesus is his final hope. And this is his final plea. If you can help us, have pity. Brethren, this is the cry of a desperate father for his son. <sighs> Have you ever been desperate? I mean it. Have you ever been desperate? Desperate people say and do things which are out of character. They are people who have lost hope. They have come to the end of their rope, we say. And they get there through multiple slams and crunches and failures in life that have beaten the hope out of them. They've done what they know to do. This man had watched his son go from infancy through his childhood to young adulthood, and the years have not improved a thing. 
the boy has gone from bad to worse. The boy has had this demon who has thrown many attempts to kill him, but that failing, nevertheless, the reality is that the young man is being, the word is destroyed, the father says. Dad sees this. But he does not know what to do anymore. He reasoned that Jesus' disciples could help. Oh, what a disappointment. They could not. Is it such a surprise then to hear in his plea a note of doubt a note of uncertainty. Jesus, if you can help us. And Jesus picks up on this and did not let it drop. Verse 23, if you can, Jesus said, is that what you're saying to me? If you can? He goes on. Yeah, everything is possible for him who believes. So this is a rebuke for his unbelief. But it is also a shot of hope. All in the same breath. Yeah, everything is possible. For him who believes. Boy, and it had the desired effect. Look at verse 24. Immediately, we read, the boy's father exclaimed, <laughs> I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. There's both affirmation here, I do believe, and a prayer, help me overcome my unbelief. This is a prayer of repentance. An acknowledgement that yes, I believe you can help me, but I'm not so sure that you will. But please, Lord, do not hold my lack of faith against me. Forgive me and help me to trust you. Brethren, this response puts his finger right on the sore spot in us who live our daily lives by faith. We're like this man in the story. We believe that God can help us. Okay. We just do not believe that he will.
faith that pleases God is the latter. I mean, without trusting God to keep his promises to us, our faith in his potential to act is rather fruitless. How often the window of heaven is shut tight and will not pour out their blessings on us because of our unbelief. Yes, a history of discouragement makes it hard for us to believe, but believe we must if we are to receive showers of blessings. So how do we move towards a trusting faith? Well, you need to resolve, number one, the arguments of the world mocking a life of faith as godless counsel. That's where you need to start, right there. Simply put, if you listen to your friends, you will end up in hell with them. We do not find people of faith in the world. The world of Jesus' day was an unbelieving generation. And 22 centuries later, has not improved things one bit. Bildad's words to Job are true for all times. The plants wither from heat. And then he makes this statement to Job. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless, just like that plant. What he trusts in is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. Job 8, verses 13 and following. That's a good analogy when you think about it. The spider web looks beautiful, huh? It's intricate in design, it's well thought out, there's no two alike, it's like a snowflake. It works for the spider because he has death on his mind for what he snares and a meal for the one that survives. But he is up to no good for his victim. Godless counsel is like that. It's no good for you because it is godless. It doesn't have the strength to sustain the one who weaves it, nor you. And if you lean on it, the Spider-Man and you, the victim, will both perish. The Scottish poet and novelist Sir Walter Scott wrote, Oh, what tangled webs we weave. 
when first we practice to deceive. Solomon put it this way. With his mouth the godless destroys his neighbor. But through knowledge the righteous escapes. Proverbs 11 verse 9. Do you really think that godless people have accurate views of God? It's like asking the devil to give a book report on the Bible. Jesus warned his disciples of the false teachers of his day. Leave them, he says. They are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Matthew 15, verse 14. Faith in God is never bolstered by the arguments of the world. Flee then this godless counsel. Get your information about God from those who know God. Those who have the experience of how God has met their every need. That's number one. Number two, resolve not to let another person down by failing to pray for him or her. The nine disciples who did not accompany Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration let this man down when it came when he came begging for help. The man was desperate. His hope for help for his demonic son was hanging by a thread. And these disciples had evidenced the ability to exercise demons in their ministry, but this was not new to them. But they were full of pride. They thought, ah, we can do this. Yeah, piece of cake. And I do not doubt that they tried, but they failed miserably. God was not with them. Why was he not with them? They failed to pray for his empowerment. They failed to pray, thy will be done. The commission of Christ was this. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. Mark 16, verse 17. To work in Jesus' name is to work in agreement with all that he stands for and does so that he, not you, gets the glory. And the disciples forgot this and they failed this man. They failed his son. And it was a failure that could have been averted. They could have prayed. All God's people have a hearing before God. We can and should pray. And James says of our praying, pray for each other 
so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful. It is effective. James 5, verse 16. The prophet Samuel told Israel when they had sinned, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. 1 Samuel 12, verse 23. Corporate prayer on Wednesday evenings here at this church is prayer for the saints like no other. It's prayer like no other. People confess their sins. They renounce their pride. They plead each other's case before God and the window of heaven pours out blessings you need to come and experience the downpour thirdly we need to resolve not to attribute to Jesus the failure and inadequacies of his disciples This is an important point. This father came to Jesus with more doubts than he had faith. Why? Well, he read into Jesus' abilities the failures of the disciples. He says, I asked, actually the Greek says, I begged I begged your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. That's true. (laughs) But Jesus' words were also true. Everything is possible for him who believes in him, that believes in him, in Jesus. It's not enough to believe that Jesus can do the impossible, you must believe that he will. That's the trust part of faith that pleases God. I wish we followers of Christ were more an example of faith than we are. I would hope that none of us give wrong signals to people concerning the grace of God and the power of God to transform lives. But I am a realist. I know we are not the shining examples we should be. When we fail you, my friend, when we know Christ, do not exhibit in trust in him as we should, Well, then do we not lay on Jesus' account our failures? He's not like us. He succeeds where we fail. He shines when our light is dim. Or hidden. 
So what I'm saying is trust your soul to Jesus and you will never be disappointed. Seek his forgiveness and you will never be turned away. Never. Even if he were to challenge you for your doubts and for your weak faith, he will still command the demons to come out and never enter again. Verse 25 of our text. And God has proved himself reliable to every poor sinner who comes to him. And Jesus has promised, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He goes on, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle, I am humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is the light. Matthew 11, 28 and following. When yoked neck to neck with God, as a paired yoke of oxen are, Jesus does all the work and you get to enjoy the ride. Brethren, the promise Moses gave to Joshua when he handed over the reins of leadership to him is well worth taking to heart for ourselves. He says, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. May we live our lives not only believing that God can keep his promise to us, but that he will. He will. That's the difference between belief and trust. Only the latter moves the hand of God. Trust moves the hand of God on your behalf. May we be people who trust Him. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for who Jesus is. And we praise you for that. We think of this poor father who had borne the burden of a disabled child from his youth up. Now he's a young man, but he can't speak and he can't hear. And he is bound by an evil spirit. The father did what he knew to do. He brought his impaired son to the disciples of Christ, believing that they as followers and disciples of Jesus could help him, but they could not. They were full of pride when they should have been full of prayer. It took the special touch of Christ himself 
Lord, that's what we pray for any sinner here today. Us saved sinners can't save them at all. We're bound. I can't save anybody. I can tell them the truth. I can point them to Christ. But if they don't run to Christ, if they don't go to him, I can't help them. None of our deacons can help. None of our elders can help. None of our people can help in that sense. But we who know Christ as Savior can and do say to the lost, come to Christ. He won't throw you away. He won't reject you. How can we say that? Because he says it of himself. We're just telling the story. Oh, Lord, save whom you will this day. Encourage, discourage people. May we be emboldened by the fact that our God is the creator of the universe. He does what he pleases among the affairs of men. Amen. Our closing hymn is 410. 410 in the hymnal. Great hymn, it says, My faith looks up to thee. That's where it needs to be. Not, <laughs> not looking at ourselves, but looking up to glory.
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to be faith, that to have the faith that trusts, not just a head knowledge, but an active faith that trusts. Help us to lean upon you and to know you as the Savior that you are. Strengthen us, we pray, for the days in which we live. These are hard times. They are discouraging times in many ways. We see our country going routes that disturb us because they're not righteous ways to go, but they're going the way of all men. Satan is the god of this age. And unaware, men and women are going his route, following his lead. And we pray, Lord, that you would deliver us. Thank you for the truth of your word, for the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. He sets the pattern for all of us who believe. And we praise and thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. There's no evening service tonight, so. There is. Oh, okay. What's that?